Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello listeners, you're tuned into Queremia and 3CR Community Radio. I'm Iris and I'm your presenter today. Thanks to Encyclodelia for that another informative hour on drug policy. Um, first, I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from Stolen Land, the land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. And I'd like to acknowledge that I'm a white person. I benefit from the white supremacy this country is founded on. Colonization continues and so does genocide. I'd like to pay my respects to Indigenous elders past, present and future and acknowledge any Indigenous listeners. And in terms of today, um, I have for you some um, some recordings from a panel put on by Undercurrent and one of the speakers is Kira Vola, um, who is Dylan Vola's sister. Um, And so in terms of that, that's going into a lot of the over-incarceration of of Indigenous people in this country and that goes to uh, systemic issues of racism and white supremacy. Um, so a little bit more about Undercurrent. Um, so Undercurrent has been doing a public workshop series on, I guess, like a broad range of things on sort of relationships and consent and accountability that in not in, in interpersonal relationships, but also systemically, um, and they've held the workshop series that ended on the 30th of October. Um, their last one was less of a workshop, it was more like a panel, and I made some recordings, and thanks to all the speakers um, for letting me record you. Um, it was a really excellent night, and thanks to Undercurrent as well, and shout out to all the people in Undercurrent that helped me out with that. Um, you're great. Yeah, and you should check out Undercurrent at undercurrentvic.com. They definitely need your donations and support and have a lot of resources on healthy relationships. It's really important considering that a third of intimate relationships and more widely to relationships in general have abusive, are abusive and have abusive, abusive patterns. And we really need to change that because that is really messed up. And Undercurrent's doing the important education work that is about changing that. So I think, yeah, we can all learn a lot from a lot of the work that Undercurrent does. So, okay. So you're going to hear from a few speakers. So first is Lauren Caulfield and second is Kira Bola and last is Anthony Kelly. In a sec. Is Lauren Caulfield. Uh, Lauren is a community organiser who wor- whose work focuses on interpersonal and state-sanctioned gender violence community-based responses to violence and the nexus of racialized and gendered violence. Lauren currently works on the Police Accountability Project at Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre and with the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre. She'll be talking about community-based frameworks for violence prevention, intervention, survivor support and accountability with a particular focus on supporting survivors of family violence and sexual assault. Can we close that? 
Thanks very much um, for inviting me to be part of the panel this evening. I'm really excited to be here. By excited, I mean I've just started cracking myself a little bit. Um, so I wanted to add to the um, acknowledgement of traditional owners um, and country by also acknowledging the survivors of the communities who worked to build this work over a really huge period of time, especially First Nations and Cutipop communities internationally. Um, so I'm speaking about community accountability and community-based responses to gendered and intimate partner violence tonight. Um, and as something of a kind of an introductory caveat, I wanted to say that I'm also a little bit wary of the framing of community accountability responses, or at least those that I'm kind of um, involved with, um, as, as an alternative to the prison industrial complex or as an alternative to police and prisons, because I think this assumes um, an established capacity to respond when in reality um, situations can often be quite humbling. Um, and also I think it risks creating a situation where survivors can be pressured to sort of demonstrate their radical politics by not calling the police um, and instead taking up community responses. And also that it, it potentially risks building the false idea that we can eliminate the harms of the prison industrial complex through community-based interventions to violence alone. And of course we can't do that. Um, and the other caveat that I think is um, related to that is that because of our tendency to focus our community accountability or community-based interventions on responses to intimate partner violence and, and sexual violence and that ilk of harm, I think, rather than other types of harms that are perpetrated in our communities. It can mean that often, uh, it also risks creating a situation where we're sort of testing some of these initiatives kind of light to air um, on the lives of survivors, which I think, so that's all kind of some of the um, risk and, and framing stuff that I see. Um, and I also wanted to note that while it's, obviously it's a really essential intersection that we're working at, um, and is it my movement that's doing that? Sorry, I'm really flat. I'll try and hold my hands like this. Um, so, <laughs> I have to stop flapping. So, um, while it's a really essential intersection and we absolutely need to develop strategies that tackle both state-based and interpersonal violence, it's not always an easy alliance, obviously, between feminist anti-violence work and prison abolitionism. Um, and I think that's because the former has often built relationships with and advocated for the role of police and prisons without um, necessarily engaging with the real critique and acknowledgement of their inherent violence, the harms that they entail, um, the ways that the prison industrial complex um, disproportionately criminalises survivors of violence, First Nations people and, um, and people of colour, to name just a few, and the ways that also building relationships with police and prisons also serves to enshrine and legitimise their role and, and um, assists in kind of confusing the idea of accountability with punishment. Um, but then in turn, I think from a prison abolitionist perspective, um, prison abolitionism has also um, sometimes failed to sufficiently answer the question about what, what mechanisms actually exist for survivors, particularly right now, how those will be prioritised, and what happens in the smaller proportion of situations where people are repeatedly or seriously violent, and perhaps community capacity is not yet up to dealing with that. Um, so I wanted to kind of name those, those complexities up front um, and with that in mind, community-based anti-violence work is necessarily really um, deeply hopeful or optimistic work. It's very much still underway um, and, and under evolution and like anything that straddles complexity, it's the subject of a lot of debate and contention and critique, um, not least from those engaged in the work and within the field. 
Um, so there's limited time tonight. I'm going to try and jam it into 20 minutes. Um, but I was asked to talk about principles and frameworks. So my plan was to talk about um, some of those frameworks and principles, so a bit of the theory, but in a nutshell, to talk about some local examples and then to touch on a couple of challenges and directions in the work locally. Um, so up here is, um, is some information that's taken from Insight Feminists of Colour Against Violence, who were one of the um, groups of people who coined the term community accountability, that talks about community accountability as a, as a community-based strategy rather than a police or prisons-based strategy to tackle violence. So it's essentially how we work to address violence within our communities rather than assuming that this is the work of outside experts. Um, and it might be difficult to read, but in the kind of petals of the flower um, are a number of principles. So community accountability is a process in which a community, whether that's a group of friends, a family, a workplace, a neighbourhood, a music scene, a campaign collective, work together to do the following things. So firstly, to create and affirm values and practices that resist abuse and oppression and encourage safety, support and accountability. Secondly, to provide safety and support to community members who are violently targeted and support that respects their self-determination, which is a really important delineator from some other work. Um, thirdly, to develop sustainable strategies to address community members' abusive behaviour, including by creating a process for them to account for their actions and transform their behaviour. So that third pedal is the one that I think gets a lot of attention um, as compared to some of the other avenues of community-based work. Um, and fourth, to commit to ongoing development of all members of the community and the community itself to transform the political conditions that reinforce oppression and violence. Um, the other term that's often used, other slide link, is, um, is transformative justice. So transformative justice is, is a liberatory approach to violence which seeks safety and accountability without relying on alienation, punishment or state or systemic violence. So it's trying to delineate both from the tactics of the prison industrial complex as well as the agencies themselves, um, including incarceration or policing. Um, and the, the three core principles appear on the slide. So um, individual justice and, um, sorry, I've lost my page. Um, individual justice and collective liberation are equally important, mutually supportive and fundamentally intertwined. So the one can't be achieved without the other. Um, secondly, that the conditions that allow violence to occur must be transformed in order to achieve justice in individual instances of violence. And thirdly, that state and systemic responses to violence, including the criminal legal system and child welfare agencies, not only fail to advance individual and collective justice, but also, um, also condone and perpetuate cycles of violence. So transformative justice seeks to provide people who experience violence with immediate safety and long-term healing um, and reparations while holding people who commit violence accountable within and by their communities. Um, another couple of, of quick sort of terminology or, or theory aspects are that um, sometimes there's, there's um, not much distinction drawn between transformative justice and restorative justice. And there's a couple of really crucial distinctions, one of which is that um, transformative justice absolutely is explicitly decoupled from the criminal legal system in a way that restorative justice often isn't. And also the way that restorative justice seeks to restore the pre-harm conditions. Transformative justice seeks to go a step further and to say, well, the conditions that were in place when the harm occurred weren't good enough and they actually warrant transformation as well. Um, so they're beautiful and powerful concepts. They're also um, potentially sometimes quite aspirational, you know, transforming all of the conditions that, that led to harm is like, no big deal, right? Like, <laughs> all over it. Um, and the other thing to note is that I think that 
especially when we consider the kind of the flower of community accountability work, that it, um, similar to a lot of agency-based work, covers the full continuum from violence prevention to intervention and crisis response, survivor support and perpetrator accountability. Um, I think there's often a tendency to think of community accountability as solely the work around perpetrator accountability, so facilitated processes with people who used violence or, or caused harm. Um, and of course, it's not an either-or choice between survivor support and accountability either. So survivor-centric survivor ethics are absolutely key to community accountability work. Um, and the other kind of principle that I wanted to draw out of that is the idea of um, individual versus collective accountability. So a whole lot of, um, of kind of traditional anti-violence work, including a lot of work that comes out of an agency space, tends to view the idea of accountability as the, the job of the person who's, who's committed the harm. So that's the person who is the one to be accountable for violence. Whereas community accountability also sees that communities must collectively take responsibility for harm by becoming more knowledgeable and skillful and willing to intervene when violence or harm occurs um, and to support the conditions that prevent it from occurring. And I think when we see accountability as a collective skill rather than an individual skill, we look at it entirely differently. Um, facilitated processes then become just one tactic to respond to harm. And if we assume that accountability is only related to the perpetrator, it leads to us being in a situation where we're like, if that person doesn't acknowledge the harm, there's nothing that we can do, whereas actually there's often an enormous amount that we can do even if that person is refusing to acknowledge harm. Um, I wanted to quickly scan for some examples. There's probably heaps of different examples that people have in the room of, of community accountability work that happens locally, but I wanted to note community-based um, violence prevention work and, um, and trainings like this. Thanks, Omnikar. Um, the Transformative Justice Camp, the work of the Transformative Justice Network, so education and resource sharing, that, including the work that traverses or adapts tools that are used in an agency space for community interventions, mentoring and supporting people in the work, street patrols, I think Anne will talk about some of those, storytelling and advocacy, so I'm thinking of projects like, like I Am Not My Skin, um, in which Pacifica and Polynesian youth talk about their experiences of state-based violence. Survivor support, both individual support and the work of collectives, so the new survivor support collective, but previously the work of collectives like A World Without. Um, safer spaces work done on a kind of case-by-case -case basis and in particular communities and venues. Work that focuses on gender violence enacted in prisons, so including the violence of strip searches state-sanctioned sexual assault, the work of Inside Out and others. So there's a huge amount of um, community accountability work that happens locally um, and certainly collectives and projects that hold abolitionist ethics in anti-violence work. So Undercurrent, the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre and who work to address intimate partner violence but also act in solidarity with criminalised and incarcerated people. Um, and then of course facilitated accountability work with people who've caused harm. Um, I assumed I'd probably be speaking after Anthony and Ada, so I'm going to speak like from a premonition perspective and say that um, that I think you know they they were touched on that work in an agency context, but there's a um, a large number of parallels with the kind of accountability work that also happens um, from a community space. So those parallels are things like taking a psychoeducational approach, um, some of the techniques like risk assessment and partner contact work. Um, in tandem and as regular check-in and reference point or the architecture of an accountability process, use of the power and control framework and a focus on privilege um, and entitlement 
rather than sort of spurious ideas of, of anger management work. Um, and there's also some key ways that community-based accountability work differs from agency-based work. And some of that is um, often it's, you know, it might occur in a one-on-one -on -one, um, way, it can occur over a longer term, that community-based interventions often don't have the same leverage as court-based mandates to get people to engage or to come along, which is not to say that there's no leverage, but it's often a different kind of leverage. Um, and so subsequently tend to work more with people who at least acknowledge the harm, you know, that it's occurred and express some kind of willingness to engage in accountability. And also, of course, it occurs in a known location and is often work with known people, which is quite different as well from, um, from some MBC-based work. And the other um, important principle there is survivor-led ethics, so centering survivors in accountability processes. Often um, in those processes, the survivors' needs and requests provide the starting point and the architecture of the process. Uh, and the other piece of work that I think happens um, locally or is, or is happening more locally is work to develop thoughtful and useful responses to interpersonal violence that add to and build beyond the kind of triple zero or call the police reflex. So actually the work that looks at community divestment from police and prisons. And I'm thinking of the Beyond Triple Zero workshops and some of that work with agencies kind of pushing back on the idea that the default response to violence is always to call the police. Um, for, in terms of challenges and directions, I'm talking fast to, to smash through it all, um, there's obviously a, like a zillion challenges and dilemmas and paradoxes in the work so issues like what if the person causing harm doesn't want to be accountable? How do we avoid compounding harm or replicating oppressive tactics in our interventions? Um, how do we appropriately pay homage to the communities who've developed this work and avoid appropriation while also stepping up to do this work in our own communities? Um, but a really central challenge that comes up all the time um, and is spoken about a lot in Melbourne is the challenge of kind of who is the community? You know, so if we, how do we define a community if we're bound together by politics or identity or friendship rather than geography or necessity? And how do we create conditions that mean that the community will hold together in the challenging circumstances of anti-violence work or when a harm has occurred, particularly a serious harm? Um, and I had a quote I wanted to put up there from um, an activist, Norma, who, um, who I interviewed for a research project, and she said, um, I think a lot of the time the way that people start engaging with community accountability is there's an incident and we're trying to figure out what to do and there's this really rad approach that we've heard about and we end up trying something, burning out, and then there's another phase and another phase of people going through that arc. And I remember a few years ago someone saying, what would it be like if we knew that there was going to be an incident of harm in our community in three to five years? what would we do now to actually be ready by then, rather than just leaping into action because we know something's happening right now, which is coming out of a well-intentioned impulse to help, but often not having laid that groundwork. Yeah, and so um, I think that leads to a kind of a directional thing, which is about building accountable communities, so building the skills and capacity for collective response. And there's no magic fix answer to that. Like that's about building, um, working together to build a shared analysis of violence and deepening our own understandings and personal practice rather than assuming that this is something that we just have or that it's shared because we're kind of radical um, and to embed this in our communities in an ongoing way. Um, so that's about taking ourselves through resources, writing, building spaces for community dialogue, storytelling, training, events and discussions like this 
sharing and reflecting and like archiving, archiving and actually talking about our experiences so that we're not losing that knowledge from intervention to intervention and working deliberately on self-accountability and accountable relationships um, as a building block for community accountability. So the idea that we're making agreements in advance of a harm to come, that means that we'll be better equipped to respond to that. Um, and the second area that I wanted to talk about was how we make our critique effective and useful. I've got one more slide. Um, so how we evaluate our work. And um, there was a comment um, that I put up, there was a quote from um, Jenna who works with Philly Stands Up who said, um, once we became focused on success, we tended to pay less attention to the patterns of abusive behaviour that this person still needed to work through. We found ourselves working in ways that we associate with the non-profit industrial complex, looking for easy, marketable victories with the goal of generating statistics and glossing over contradictions and inconsistencies that might call our work into question. So I think there's a whole lot in there, and I'm sure Ada and Anthony will probably talk about it a bit, around men's behaviour change work. Like, it's similarly complex work to evaluate. And the question that we often want to ask is, did it work? Like, did our intervention work? And I think when we do that, we tend to often um, evaluate ourselves against this kind of idea of um, an imagined or utopian um, kind of um, experience where uh, the survivor receives meaningful support, the person who's being held accountable has been through a transformative process, you know, the ripple effects have gone through the community and we've enacted transformation. But the reality is so much more complex. So often we're better off, I think, comparing ourselves to the other alternatives that do exist, like, you know, the work of agencies and police and prisons, which are often themselves desperately flawed. So the work is nuanced and it's difficult to capture and, and much of the same challenges um, face us in evaluating community accountability as, do, as face behaviour change programs. How do we capture experiential information rather than just statistics to accurately examine work? And if, so as an example, if substantial behavioural change isn't achieved, but the intervention means that the survivor is able to access safety or to leave the relationship safely, was it a success? You know, some of those kinds of questions of complexity. Um, and so it doesn't mean that we don't need to monitor our work, but it's a question of what for. You know, it's, it's not the same as a non-profit model that we, you know, we're not evaluating for funding, we're evaluating for effectiveness and to improve and to do good work in the world. So what's useful then is, um, is the yardstick, centering survivors in our work, in our reflections on it, having articulated principles and ethics, being structured, consistent and systematic about risk assessment and safety planning to guide the objectives for our interventions and structuring projects for confidential feedback and taking a harm reduction perspective where at the very least we aim to prevent the harm. We hope to mitigate the impact of the harm that's occurred and to prevent it from happening again. Um, and so I was just going to conclude in my last minute or so um, and say why, given all of the complexity, like the call to action, why would we do community accountability work? Um, and I think, well, essentially because we need to, because we live in the container of white supremacist, capitalist, sexist, heteropatriarchy, um, and it really rolls off the tongue. And it's, um, so intimate partner gendered and sexual violence is rife and right through our communities, and it demands a response from every angle, because we know that people most often turn to family, friends, and community when they experience violence. And because when we experience violence, we often choose to or need to remain in our relationships or shared communities. And in turn, those locations, family and communities where the violence occurs, often have the most nuanced and close-up view of it and the, and the strongest investment in the safety of the people involved. And so that's a really unique position to envisage creative responses. Um, and because for many reasons, often people don't want to contact the police or interact with the criminal legal system 
or these are the, not the most fitting options or sites of safety, and insisting that they are or forcing that on people is deeply problematic. Um, and finally, because it means that we take up collective responsibility for our individual and collective action to build safer communities, um, rather than assuming that this is solely the work of outside agencies or systems that are themselves inherently violent. And that was Lauren Caulfield from the Undercurrent Frameworks for Accountability um, panel. And you're tuned into Queering the Air, and I'm Iris, and I'm on air, apparently. <laughs> um, next, we have Kira Vola. Um, that will come, and yeah. Okay. Um, Kira Vola is a proud Wurundjeri woman and musician. She lives in in Mbantua, raising her young family and works advocating for young people and the abolition of youth prisons. She works alongside grandmothers who are traditional owners in Central Australia, advocating for Aboriginal-led alternatives to prison. She is coming to us from Shut Youth Prisons, Mbantua. Kira will discuss alternatives to incarceration for young people and culturally appropriate responses for Indigenous youth, including taking young people out to homelands. Hi. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm Kira Bola. Um, I'm a woman from down south. I live in Alice Springs in Bantua. And um, I've been, I guess, uh, kind of sent down here from the, the grandmothers up there who have been working really hard um, to try and get some sort of action happening to be able to shut down the the youth prisons in, or in particular Dondale, um, and bring the kids back home and onto country, and so they can be like looked after in culturally appropriate ways, and they can learn their culture and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna start off by reading out um, this a statement that the grandmothers, sorry, the grandmothers um, came up with, and I think they've sent it to Michael Gunner, and um, we've just published it around trying to get some sort of support and doing rallies and all sorts of things, just trying to get support around this momentum because I guess it, a lot of us feel kind of mad sometimes speaking about this when there's such a big community of people that are just so against kids not being in prison and just like are so for kids being in prison and it's really hard to try and I guess get your voice heard and so I feel, oh, another thing I just wanted to say as well, this is like my first time speaking since, since um, I guess I, since I felt pressure to speak because my brother was in Dondale and he was, I guess, bound by the system and I felt the pressure to have, have to speak on his behalf and all those other times that I've spoken, I've felt, yeah, like a, a pressure to have to speak in the moment and now I feel kind of, I feel like it's more of a passion at the moment now for the rest of the kids because my brother's still alive and he still has his life and he's free now, like, so that's, you know, that's a blessing but at the same time it's a curse because I'm, haunted with all these memories of all these other kids that are still in Dondale and like right now our, our jail in Alice Springs, our kids juvenile detention centre is empty because they're renovating it and they've sent all of the indigenous kids from there 1,500 kilometres away into to Darwin to Dondale and so they're all 1,500 kilometres away from their country, from their family, from anybody who's able to visit them and they're sitting in a jail that was closed down years ago for adults because it was riddled with asbestos and these adults couldn't be contained in the prison so the government built 
the adults a new state-of-the-art prison and put all of the kids into the old prison that's riddled with asbestos, which is where Dylan was held at the time of all of those videos. And still, all these kids are still being held there. I've, I've tried to speak to the minister about it. I've tried to speak to Dale Wakefield about it, who's the children's minister um, for family and children's in the NT. And at the moment, her solution was to give family and children's services um, control over juvenile justice, basically. So now family and children's services isn't just taking kids off of their parents, but they can now take kids off their parents and also send them to jail without them having to go through adult corrections facility at all, which is just so wrong because it's, it's the opposite way in what we're trying to go. We're trying to get kids out of the system completely and facts at the moment are being investigated by the Royal Commission for not being able to do their job in, in the part of all of that child protection stuff and yeah, so I'm just going to read this statement out from the grandmothers and what they've written and, and then I'll just read a bit of my um, speech. Um, so the grandmothers group calls upon Michael Gunner, the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory, to listen to us. The grandmothers group was set up to stop youth detention and to support Aboriginal deaths in custody which has now grown to include support for families dealing with youth suicide and for children and youth experiencing violence on the streets, communities and in detention. The Grandmothers Group calls upon the grandfathers and families to work with us to help all our children and youth in need and to stop the violence against our children and youth on the streets, on the communities and in detention. As Aboriginal families, we care for all our children and youth and we want government to acknowledge us and listen to us about the care and protection of children and youth. As Aboriginal families, we can work together with others in the community to improve the care and protection of our children by making safe places for them on their homelands and to be in the care of guardianship of their families. As Aboriginal families, we support better management of culturally appropriate diversionary programs to be based throughout the region for Aboriginal children and youth. We support the healing and well-being of all our children and youth by teaching them about respect for themselves, for their elders and families, for others in the community and for their homeland. We want to teach them about their language and culture and to learn about the dreaming of their country and to learn how to listen to the songs and the dance like their elders and ancestors. We support their growth and development in life and want to teach them about their traditional roles and responsibilities with good behaviour and attitude in life. We want to secure better opportunities in schooling, employment and training and in academic and career pathways for our children and youth and for them to achieve in life and to be happy as the future generations of Aboriginal managers and carers for our homelands. The Grandmothers Group would like to thank all of those of you who supported our cause by sharing your knowledge and skills and time for standing by us. And so I guess um, elaborating on that, kids can't do any of that in jail and it's not possible especially for indigenous kids you know to have any of that connection to culture and like in um in the NT I, I can't remember the percentage of kids but I think it's it's pretty close to majority of the kids in Dondale are indigenous which is it's really sickening and saddening for a lot of these grandmothers because they're not they don't you know they don't have their grandkids to be able to pass on their songs to and their, their stories and their culture and and everything like that. Um, and um, yes, I just wanted to make sure that I, I read that out um, because I've been I've been blessed with these beautiful, strong women who've been you know fighting for these things for years, like years and years and years, marching for years, and still not being heard, not being listened to, 
And now, like, I feel like, you know, like, young people like myself need to listen to them and take on some of that fight and speak up. And so I want to, um, I want to speak a bit about myself and, like, when I was younger and the kinds of trouble I got into and, I guess, the, the ways in which people treated me differently based on the way they thought that, I guess, either if I was too light or if I was too dark in the way that the society, I guess, treats young people. Um, so, so, like, you may have seen my little brother, Dylan, on um, Four Corners, um, and I've become an advocate for him over the past year. And um, I, I was raised by my mum, who raised five, five kids as a single mother, and she instilled in us strong values about not being judgmental and being accepting of people from all walks of life. And we moved to Alice Springs when I was about 11 years old, and I grew up in Adelaide before that. When I got to Alice Springs, I hit puberty and rebelled really hard against my mum. And I was, I, I used to shoplift and walk around town and, and just do lots of really bad things. And there were times when shoplifting, it was just fun. You know, it was just, just to see what, what you could get, if you could get away with it, which I got away with it a lot. And I feel like it was because of my light skin. Because there'd be times when I'd go into town with friends who were darker than me or family. And they would know to wait outside the shop because I'd be able to get in the shop and steal something a lot easier than that, than they would if they'd come in with me, you know. And so just it was just a mindset that no young person should even have to have, to have you know. They shouldn't have to think, you know, I sh I'm going to be judged when I walk into this shop. And there were different managers and different shopkeepers in town who would treat me differently. Like, so there would be shopkeepers who would just say, give me a trespass notice and ban me completely. And then that would just, it would make me be like, kind of like a FU type of attitude because it's like there's no there's no platform for me to be able to learn anything as a young person or for them to be able to teach me anything. And so to be just banned or barred or told that I'm not allowed to enter somewhere, it was, yeah, it gave me kind of a reason to want to try to sneak in there when the shopkeeper wasn't looking or something. Whereas when, like, and I still remember this manager to this day, she still works at the shop, but she instead of kicking me out of the shop, she came up and she said, look, I know that you steal from my shop, but I just want you to know that I'm watching you. You can come in my shop whenever you want, but don't steal because I, I know that you steal. And I've kind of like made me think, oh shit, okay. And then I'd, I stopped and I really like cut back on, I'd go in there, but I'd, it just made me question like, why would you let, like, why would you give somebody that much room to break your trust and then you know, they could break, which I didn't because she'd given me that trust. And that's kind of where I'm getting to is with kids, you've got to give them trust. Whereas if we're locking kids up from a young age for stealing, for, you know, breaking, like one of Dylan's earliest charges was property damage because he couldn't see mum one day in, in a fax meeting. And so he smashed the fax window building and he got charged with property damage at 11 years old. And that's like so many kids in Alice Springs and NT everywhere really are being charged with these offences and being criminalised as if they're adults and they know the repercussions of their actions when you, like as adults and as a society we could help them learn and you know like take that opportunity to teach them how to better themselves rather than locking them up or taking them through an adult court system and like I don't have all the solutions for this but I know that there's so much money that's being funneled into prison and into you know child protection that's not actually protecting children or helping them or bettering them off in any way. And if all that money was redirected in, into these grandmothers, you know, and their homelands that they have available ready to, to better off kids and give them, you know, positive, positive reinforcement and um, 
you know, achievable goals because you can't really achieve anything in jail. Like, that's the last resort to me, I think, is is jail. And I, I speak on behalf of youth prisons because I don't, I haven't even, like I said, you know, it's my first time speaking as as this type of a passion on this this topic and I just, um, it's it's just really, it hits close to home, like there's young people in jail and I just feel like they don't, they, none of them deserve to be there regardless of what they've done, like I feel like there's so many adults and, you know, government and support networks and money that could be redirected and, and funneled into, yeah, positive, positive things for these kids that, um, ultimately could change the rest of their lives rather than making them feel like criminals for the rest of their life. I'm not, I'm not sure what else uh, to say. I think I have, a, I have a little bit more, but I kind of went off, off trail a little bit. But um, yeah, basically that's, that's just where I wanted to speak from a point of, yeah, trying to get understanding on like, especially indigenous, um, indigenous kids, like, that's where I'm speaking on a level of indigenous kids, because they have so much underlying issues, you know, we've dispossessed, and we don't, a lot of intergenerational trauma, and disconnection from our culture, and, you know, for so long, like, I was trying, trying to be this white person, like, that, I, I like, just trying so hard to fit into this society that, and I knew it wasn't, where I was meant to try to fit into, but the world made me feel like it, like all the stealing, I didn't need to steal, like I, I stole because there was things that I felt I needed to fit into the world, like, and it wasn't, like I always had everything I needed, but I did those things because I felt, yeah, the pressure of societies made me feel like that, and the same with kids when they're removed from facts, from their families into facts, you know, they're given all these worldly possessions that just take away from love and life and that family value and that's it happens too much and then that leads to anger and all of those underlying issues inside of that child but then the world doesn't understand why that child's so angry and it's just so it just seems like such a simple a simple thing to be able to understand but so many people don't understand it but yeah that's i'm not sure what else to say Yes, support 3CR. I'm Iris, and you're tuned into Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your AM dial, on digital, on demand, podcasted. Um, yeah. So the previous speaker you heard was Kira Vola from the Undercurrent Frameworks for Accountability Forum that happened on the 30th of October. You can check out more at undercurrentvic.com, and I'm going to play the next speaker who is Anthony Kelly. Um, Anthony Kelly has over 25 years of experience in human rights advocacy, strategic social justice campaigning and community development. Prior to joining the Flemington Kensington Legal Centre in early 2011, he was coordinator of the Men's Referral Service for seven years, among many other significant roles with community legal centres and social justice organisations. Anthony will discuss the Police Accountability Vic work. And within this project, they predominantly apply state, institutional or legal forms of accountability upon the police, as well as leverage various forms of moral, ethical and community-based mechanisms. Anthony will also discuss gay and lesbian, queer street patrols, Aboriginal night patrols and community patrols, safety projects uh, and police alternative projects.
Um, that was brilliant. Um, what an honour to be on a panel like this. I hope this is useful. And um, um, I'm going to be specific about uh, the police accountability work we do in Victoria to start off with. And to, I'm going to go back into some history, uh, primarily for reasons which I hope will become obvious. Um, for those of you who don't know, community legal centres uh, were started in Australia in the very early 70s, the first one being Redfern Legal Service up in Sydney after um, local activists uh, responded to intense racialized, discriminatory and brutal policing in the area and um, a bunch of radical lawyers and activists formed um, the first community legal centre and it was followed quickly by uh, Fitzroy Legal Service and again formed in also in response to um, some pretty brutal policing around the inner city and around the time, followed closely by St Kilda and Broadmeadows and Monash and, and Flemington Kensington was uh, formed uh, in 1980. And again, all of these community legal centres all around Australia were essentially people like ourselves, activists, community advocates and organisers, recognising that the criminal justice system was failing marginalised, vulnerable communities. It was... Um, uh, not responding to people or it was brutalising people in various ways and so we had to set up establishments that were community controlled, community run and that provided people with access to um, forms of justice that would somehow meet their needs and try and um, maintain some space and some, um, yeah, some basically justice and redress for those people who didn't have access to um, to the justice system. Uh, around that time in the early 70s, and before my time, uh, Saul Alinsky, the, the US organiser's uh, book was over here, The Rules for Radicals. Um, some of you might remember, but be aware of him, he's making a bit of a uh, resurgence at the moment over in, in various US and Australian circles. But one of his many adages was um, build organisations, not campaigns. And basically, under the awareness that um, campaigns can be, f be powerful and flash in the pan, but it also can evaporate, whereas uh, building community power to beat the sort of entrenched, systemic, uh, industrial-scale violence that communities were facing, we needed to build organisations that were sustainable and resilient and could maintain um, resistance over a long period of time. And so his philosophy, is, and amongst that time, saw the development of 3CR, Friends of the Earth, Red Planet Posters, a whole heap of community-based, community-controlled organisations, and some of which still exist today, such as community legal centres. The community health movement was also um, emerging around that time as well, for similar reasons. Um, so, and that's something that I've realised being part of the community legal sector for a while is that um, struggles and campaigns and issues that, um, that the founders were dealing with back in the early 70s and right throughout the 80s, we're still dealing with today. Uh, and I'll just give a few uh, examples to illustrate that, one of which uh, our centre was intensely involved in, which was the police shootings campaign. Uh, for those of you who don't know, between 87 and 89, Victoria Police shot 11 people uh, fatally. Uh, and four of those people were had families or were connected or lived in the Flemington area 
and our centre became intimately um, uh, involved with the campaign for justice for those families. Uh, the, the campaign involved mass public meetings and lots of rallies and uh, also coronial inquests. Uh, six police officers were charged with murder. Uh, there was um, uh, uh, and the eventual disbandment of the armed, um, the armed robbery squad which was responsible for lots of the killings. And some of the most major reforms we'd seen in Victoria, um, Project Beacon, a massive retraining of the entire police force and um, police shootings, because of that campaign, essentially police shootings dropped off considerably in the years after that. Uh, but it was incredibly um, intense and um, our centre was in the thick of it. But one thing to note is that we've still got cases and um, campaigns from those days, from the early 80s. We're still trying to get a uh, coronal inquiry reopened into the killing of Graham Jensen uh, in um, 87. That was, um, uh, and the police involved in that are now assistant commissioners. So it's a, it's a campaign for accountability that's lasted for over 20 years. Uh, and it's just one example. Karina Horvath was a young woman who was brutally assaulted and hospitalised by local police in Narry Warren in 1996. We weren't involved in her early struggles through the, the complaint system and through the civil courts, which all of which ultimately failed her. But we did take her case to the United Nations Human Rights Committee in 2008. And it took another six years for the decision to eventually be handed down in 2014. And that decision was quite substantial. It was one of the most rapidly responded to decisions to come from, a, from the United Nations Human Rights um, Committee uh, in regard to Australia, uh, that uh, Karina Horvath, within a year of that decision handed down, she received a written apology from the Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police. She received quite uh, some reparations from the State of Victoria that replicated her early civil um, cases that she should have got 10 years earlier. And the police officer, one of the police officers involved is now facing charges. Uh, so that, that campaign was literally eight, 19, 20 years um, her struggle for justice and accountability took that long. Um, the, many of you might be familiar with the, the discriminatory policing campaigns that we've been running and are still running today. Tamara Hopkins, our then principal solicitor, began hearing complaints uh, from young African, Afghani, Indigenous men in the Flemington region of incredibly brutal policing uh, in the local area and she initially started off um, putting in formal complaints to the uh, what was then the Ethical Standards Department of Victoria Police. They universally came back as unsubstantiated, in other words failed to provide any sort of redress or accountability. Uh, she tried to get systemic reviews from what was then the Office of Police Integrity, the oversight body at the time. They refused to look into the, to the matter. Uh, after a while, there was um, 16 young men who took the Victoria Police to the, to the uh, Human Rights Committee for mediation. That mediation fell down. And then finally, in 2010, a, an action was launched in the federal court under the Race Discrimination Act, um, charging Victoria Police nine officers in the state of Victoria with systemic discrimination through racial profiling. 
That case was eventually settled in February 2013 with the police acknowledging that discrimination was harmful and that they would undertake a public inquiry into, into um, uh, their practices and training. And that culminated in a three-year action plan called the Equality is Not the Same process, which did achieve some substantial reforms, probably some of the most substantial since Project Beacon. Uh, and it's still a campaign that we're still running today. And the reason I'm mentioning all of these and the years, so that was 2005 and six when we started to receive those complaints, so now 11 years later, we're still running cases and advocacy work around racial profiling and discriminatory policing. So 11 years, Karina Horvath was 19, 20 years, and the police shootings campaign was even longer. So it's taken us as an organisation that sustainability that to maintain those struggles for accountability using available mechanisms. So you've got to, probably got a sense of the more um, ones that we've been using already. The formal complaint system, fundamentally flawed, police investigating, investigating police. We recognise the desperately flawed is the a quote from Lauren I just picked up then. Um, many of these institutional responses, um, these accountability mechanisms that a state runs are incredibly desperately flawed. Um, we use them to the greatest extent possible, but they take years. The Human Rights Commission, the decision you have to, uh, to, to get a decision through the Human Rights Committee, you have to, ex to, have to exhaust all domestic remedies and then literally wait years for a decision that may or may not have any impact on the, um, on the human rights abusers. Um, it's only because we have a sustainable infrastructure of a community legal centre that was established 30, 36 years ago, 37 years ago, that we are able to run these campaigns for accountability that last this long. Um, so, um, like many struggles are intergenerational, over periods of time, over long periods of time, some of these struggles for accountability are also intergenerational in terms of they were started by people long before Lauren and I started working at the centre. And they're probably going to be finished by people that come after us. Um, the, the, structures that we, um, the structures that we use, the human rights, um, the accountability bodies, the ombudsmans, the uh, complaint bodies, the human rights commissions, uh, one, things one of the things I've recognised, as flawed as they are, they were established uh, through campaigns um, decades and sometimes centuries before us by activists like ourselves in this room calling out for accountability. And they were often responses by the state to establish some sort of accountability against excesses and abuses. So the human rights mechanisms that we knew, knew globally were in response to the conflagration of World War II and the responses of states around the world to set up um, mechanisms and legal frameworks that would reduce um, the violence of the state against their own populations. Uh, they are fatal, they are in some cases fatally flawed. They don't work fast enough. There's not enough rigour and power in those mechanisms and all of them, all of those mechanisms only work if there is popular, sustained and powerful community um, mobilisations that force any of those institutions and the people inside them to, to take concrete action. 
Um, the, the reason why Julia Horvath's Human Rights Commission decision was so quickly uh, responded to was because we put a hell of a lot of weight and advocacy behind it. We mobilised around that decision and made the, made the most of it to maximise its outcome. Um, so we're working, one of the tensions that um, we feel continually working in the Community Legal Centre and doing this police accountability work is that uh, the reforms that we are advocating for um, don't never go far enough. They also, the systems that we work with never work fast enough and uh, as much as we can bring as much clout through the civil courts, we sue police on a continual basis, we we defend um, people who are victims of police abuse as much as we possibly can and using every legal avenue that we can, um, it never feels enough. Uh, one of the side um, uh, sort of areas of research that I've been attracted to for about 20 years or so is how do we create alternatives to the police? And of course, and many other people, of course, are interested in that field. And there's been lots of literature and research on it before. And I've tended to focus on the idea of um, community street patrols and night, and night patrols, uh, which I'll talk about briefly before before I finish. Um, alternatives to police, as you can imagine, is incredibly fraught and also incredibly difficult. Police in any jurisdiction form uh, one of the most powerful institutions. Uh, in that area. So Victoria Police have 18,000 members. They um, have um, e extremely large budgets and resources, but also um, they have a wield extraordinary political power. Um, they can make or break elections, and they have routinely um, done that. And that's similar to police forces around um, in the States and, and throughout Australia. Um, the reason the, the police forces themselves are the largest single block to any reforms uh, that um, popular movements such as Black Lives Matter um, strive to create. The police unions and the police the police forces themselves, um, just simply through their political power. Um, so f forming popular or people orient people orientated alternatives to such a force seems um, fraught. I often think in terms of the Lilliputian uh, image, uh, for those you know, familiar with Gulliver's, Gulliver's Travels, washed up on a beach with a local tiny population throw ropes all over, all over him to hold him down onto the beach. And sometimes uh, working in this space, it feels a little bit like that. Each, each little rope might hold down um, this huge um, mega force uh, one iota, but collectively we might have a um, some sort of um, response. Now, um, community street patrols are prolific. Everywhere you go, there are organised responses to hate-motivated violence and um, um, and various forms of violence within the community. And that's one thing I found in any sort of research for these these things. And they take many many forms. Um, some of the earliest were the, um, organised by the Black Panthers in the US in the 60s. Uh, the American Indian Movement had street patrols in the 70s. There are some amazing community policing models in Mexico, some organised by the Chiapas, but throughout, throughout Mexico, really viable, large-scale um, community policing options. 
Uh, in Australia, we've seen a whole a whole heap, and a, and a lot of the Aboriginal night patrols have been inspiring with their impact and effectiveness. Uh, the Yendamu night patrols that started in the mid-80s by grandmothers, aunties, high-status women walking around the communities with null and nullers and, and um, um, dealing with the glue sniffing and uh, family fighting in, in the community were, were incredibly effective. In the first year that they operated, um, incidents of family fighting and deaths by rollovers um, and were dropped by up to 80%. And in, anyone familiar with anti-violence projects, mainstream or otherwise, that sort of decline in violence is virtually unprecedented. Um, violence sort of, you know, th those sort of indicators levelled out a little bit as the, um, um, in subsequent <coughs> years, but that, that the impact of those sort of night patrols were quite extraordinary. Uh, and also they're prolific around Australia in communities uh, in Western Australia, Northern Territory, here in Victoria, and extraordinarily impactful and effective. And like many other community-based responses, um, chronically underfunded and under-resourced, um, but do reflect an extraordinarily effective community response um, to violence. Um, in the early 90s, after a whole series of um, gay murders and then also um, homophobic violence in around Darlinghurst in a, in, in a city, Sydney, um, there was an anti-violence project established and lesbian and gay street patrols started operating in, a, in 1989 and then 90 and then another version in 91. And they were also incredibly effective in straight away responding to hate motivated attacks as they happened, intervening with whistles. And there was, the, at the peak, they had about 20 or 25 patrols operating at once, people operating in patrols at once. And um, instantaneously, and, and what they noticed straight away is that the neglect that the police had, uh, had demonstrated to homophobic attacks uh, instantly changed and suddenly the police were responsive to call-outs and to, you know, to that sort of violence. Um, so I guess... And that's about all we have time for. That was Anthony Kelly um, speaking at the... Frameworks for Accountability pa panel put on by Anna Karen Vick, which is an education and transformative justice organization. That's worth checking out at undercurrentvick.com. And thanks to all the speakers at that panel. I'm Iris, and this has been Queenie. Tune in next week from 3 to 4 p.m. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.